I think that France and Mr. Macron see their independence as being a way of gaining trust of all parties when it comes to negotiating. They're not a an unconditional ally of the United States, so that gives them some credibility with uh, Vladimir Putin. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. As war continues in Ukraine, we turn our attention to Europe. Joining me to offer some analysis is Conrad Yakubuski. Conrad, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Conrad, you've got a pretty interesting role, uh, both working for the Global Mail. What's the other paper you work for? Le Devoir. What made you get into writing newspaper columns? Oh, wow. That's a long story, but well, not so much. I mean, I always wanted to be a journalist. Grew up in a large family. I'm the youngest, a very political family. So I grew up listening to a lot of political debates around the table, just naturally gravitated toward journalism. I don't know. I mean, from the earliest stage, all I remember wanting to be was uh, writing or working for newspapers and uh, putting newspapers out. And I just, the thrill of seeing that process come together just always was a source of passion for me and still is, even though <laughs> newspapers have seen better days. And was it hard to get to the place where you are working for the Globe? It's hard for me to say. I mean, I came up into the newspaper business and the journalism business through a sort of un traditional channel. I didn't go to journalism school. I did my undergrad in poli-sci at McGill. I did an MBA at UBC. And I guess when I got into the business was the late 80s. There was a very, business was expanding, um, especially in business journalism. And I started coming up in business journalism and that's where I started out. And there was, uh, then I uh, worked for Le Devoir as a political reporter during the referendum era here in Quebec and then moved on to the globe. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a 35 year long career. So it doesn't come, you know, where I am right now. I mean, it isn't a, you know, an overnight process. So long process. Well, thanks for sharing that. When it comes to being in Quebec, I've just found recently chatting with uh, a few people that are, are based there. There's, often always an interest in what's going on in the country of France, would you find? Yeah, I think obviously um, there's greater coverage of French society and French politics in Quebec just naturally because of the shared language. Sense that, uh, you know, Quebecers are the cousins canadiens of uh, French, that they are descendants, I mean, most Quebecers anyway, Quebecois, French-speaking Quebecers are descendants of French colonists. And um, I guess there's always been a an association, even though uh, Quebec was settled before the French Revolution, and hence there was a big break at the time of the revolution, obviously of the conquest. But I think the French and Quebecois, Despite living apart for several centuries, it's striking how how similar um, they are in many ways. Would you say maybe even to a greater extent, people in Quebec would be consuming French culture versus what the rest of Canada would be consuming of British culture? Um, that's a hard one. Um, I think there's a greater association in Quebec 
with French culture because of the language and mm. the fact that it's a smaller group of, of uh, French speakers in the world and they're more conscious of their, their status as not the dominant culture of English language. And I guess the variety of, or the fact that Canada is so, English Canada is so multicultural, that association with Britain and uh, is not as strong as it used to be, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps in the beginning of the 20th century. And so, yeah, definitely. I think even though the Queen is our um, head of state, I don't think most Canadians identify with British culture to in the same way that Quebecers identify with French culture. Mm -hmm. You got to buy in living in Quebec is sort of that mentality. Well, I just think it's a natural thing and uh, mm -hmm. it opens you up to a whole vast array of cultural products that, uh, you know, English Canadians don't have. So for the rest of English Canadians, uh, at this particular moment in time, we're in this the middle of a, a Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, why would it be important for listeners across this country to learn a little bit more about France? Well, for one, um, since Angela Merkel's departure as German Chancellor, um, Emmanuel Macron has emerged as, I don't think it's a stretch to say, Europe's most important leader. Um, certainly its most active leader when it comes to pushing unified responses within Europe to any host, any, any number of policy areas and, and foreign policy areas. And so he is um, definitely a critical factor in determining the extent to which Europe acts with a single voice or breaks down into many voices on any number of different issues. How would you explain the makeup of the EU for someone who's not familiar with it? Like there's some Canadians that aren't so politically informed and have no idea. Well, it's a 27-member country block of countries at various stages of their political development. It started out in the 1950s, the European Economic Community as a six-member block that was basically focused on free trade in some very critical areas uh, necessary for the rebuilding of Europe after the war, notably steelmaking. Um, and it grew from there into becoming a free trade area. And now it's a common market with a common currency. And uh, the European Union has two goals. One is, uh, you know, economic prosperity and the belief that free trade leads to that and reduces barriers to economic dynamism and growth in all member countries. But more importantly, and perhaps more importantly, is the fact that it binds European members, countries together in a way that they never want to go to war with each other again, like they did in the 19, in 1939. And so that aspect of the European Union is arguably the most important and the most critical to keeping uh, Europe a peaceful continent. And uh, I think the Ukraine war is a wake-up call to many members of the European bloc of just how fragile that might be sometimes. But at the same time, I mean, you have strong members of the European Union like Germany and France and, um, and dedicated members like 
Spain and others. And then you have weaker members or members that don't want some benefits of membership in the European Union, maybe, maybe don't want to ascribe to all of the policies of the European Union. And that's the issue with Poland and Hungary, for example, that they um, benefit immensely from um, access to European markets, but at the same time uh, want to maintain their own policies when it comes to immigration, borders, um, cultural issues, social issues, and all of that. And so there's a tension within the union about how much sovereignty you want to cede to Brussels, which is the capital of the European Union, and how much you want to keep in your own capitals. And I think that was what was at display also in the French election with Marine Le Pen, you know, advocating a more nationalist policy that would sort of take the best of Europe, but, um, renegotiate policies on open borders, cut French dues to the European Union because a part of the French government budget actually goes to Brussels to pay for Europe-wide policies. And, uh, you know, there's a European policy that uh, European citizens, no matter where they live in Europe, should have access to the same rights and social programs, for instance, as those uh, who are native to the country and Marine Le Pen, for instance, wanted to get away or do away with that so that the only French citizens would have access to French social programs. And that also was a critical element or, or uh, a key gripe of the Brexiters who didn't like that aspect of European membership. The EU, you, you mentioned earlier, it, this war in Ukraine has sort of exposed how fragile it could be. You alluded to the fact that Britain's already gone from it. And we're talking now, following the recent French election, which saw Macron get reelected. What does that do going forward in this war in Ukraine? The fact that he's still in the EU and can still help unify this block of countries that is, you know, so close in the backyard of, of the conflict that's been going on for so long. Well, I mean, it's hard to say at this point. Um, Mr. Macron had sort of set himself up as the most likely European leader to serve as an intermediary between Vladimir Putin of Russia and the West in negotiating some kind of, if not a peace agreement, some kind of compromise over Ukraine. Since the atrocities with, uh, in Bucha were exposed, Mr. Macron has not spoken to Mr. Putin and he has not said when he will um, begin speaking to him again. I think there are um, certain, um, I think we're farther from any dialogue than we have been since the beginning of the war of any possible short-term resolution to it. So I think Mr. Macron's focus is maintaining European unity with respect to sanctions and perhaps accelerating sanctions, and this is where it's going to be very difficult, including um, some kind of embargo on Russian fossil fuels. Germany is extremely dependent on Russian fossil fuels and as much as would like to sever its dependence on them, it, that cannot be done in any short term and it is extremely reticent to ratchet up sanctions, much less impose an embargo. 
And all of the European countries have their own domestic political issues to deal with because of the increase in fossil fuel prices that is driving inflation in all of their countries. So, and again, that was a, a major, a major plank of Marine Le Pen's strategy, feeding off French voter concerns about rising cost of living and whether, you know, France should really be pursuing this antagonistic relationship with Russia because um, foreign policy interests does France have in alienating Russia in, um, and protecting Ukraine. I mean, I'm not, I don't argue that point of view, but certainly that's a point of view that many nationalist leaders in Europe argue. How will you say that France has alienated Russia the least among Western countries? Because that's part of what's fed into Macron being able to have some rapport with Putin. Well, I mean, France is much less dependent on Russia economically and Mm. trade than Germany, for instance. So of all the European countries that have enabled Vladimir Putin, it's pretty hard to dispute that Germany is the most important one. It has built its energy policy around dependence on Russia, and that has proved a critical source of revenue for Russia at a time when the rest of its economy is not doing very well. So France France has always tried to establish an independent standpoint vis-a-vis the United States, vis-a-vis Russia, and vis-a-vis China, as opposed to, at the same time, it's part of NATO and it's part of a Western alliance, and it's always tried to sort of negotiate those those two identities as it suits it. But there's a strong desire among French people to have an independent foreign policy that is not aligned with the U.S. And we've seen many times where they do not, the French do not align themselves with the United States, um, as in the Iraq war. I think that France and Mr. Macron see their independence as being a way of gaining trust of all parties when it comes to negotiating workable solutions to conflicts. They're not a an unconditional ally of the United States, so that gives them some credibility with Vladimir Putin. Oh, so interesting the the way that they've built this rapport and how they've had to straddle this dichotomy with Russia. Could you speak a little bit too to the the deepening divide within France itself that is happening at the same time as they have this independence and they're trying to straddle, uh, but as you've written at length about. Uh, the f- traditional political parties in France have been relegated to the margins, and we've seen the rise of the far right and the far left to probably a far greater extent than here in Canada and in the U.S. Absolutely. You know, you have to go back a bit. Um, I mean, the French are notoriously cantankerous and unhappy with their political leaders at the best of times. So, um, but I think what we saw prior, for instance, to the 2017 election, you had two presidencies. You had Nicolas Sarkozy, who was the center-right 
president, and then you had Francois, and then he was beat by Francois Hollande, who's the Socialist Party leader, so a center-left presidency. And neither of them, I mean, both of them, within a very short period after being elected, became extremely unpopular. There was kind of this fatigue with the old politics and the deep party lines of the traditional parties, like the socialists being Canada's equivalent of the liberals and or France's equivalent of Canada's liberals, the um, uh, UMP that was the party for uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, sort of the center-right conservatives. Emmanuel Macron comes along and basically destroys those two parties by um, creating his own party, La République en Marche, and draws some very influential people from both of those parties, from the Socialists and the UMP, which actually changed its name to Les Républicains. And since then, Mr. Macron's party, which is kind of like, is not a traditional political party, it started out as a movement, and it's not deeply uh, rooted in French you know, in French departments, in French communities, in French, it's, it's, it's a, it's a top down creation mm -hmm. as opposed to a grassroots creation. And, but at the same time, it's attracted people from across the political spectrum. And because it replaced to a large extent, both the center right and center left parties, and it kind of created a single alternative in the center, that allowed for the far left and the far right to actually increase their profiles and their support. And I think the other thing that's important to note is La République en Marche, the party of Emmanuel Macron, is, is, a, is a big city phenomenon more than anything else. And that outside France's largest cities, I mean, um, Marine Le Pen won handily um, or comfortably. And um, whereas in Paris, for instance, Mr. Macron won 85% of the vote. In Bordeaux, he won 80%. In Lyon, he won 79%. But in regions like Pas-de-Calais in the north, along the... Um, Ms. Le Pen's party is strongest in the north, which is north and the northeast, which are traditionally the industrial heartland of France that experiences experienced a lot of deindustrialization in the past 20 years. And her party is also strongest in the Southwest and uh, the Northwest and the Southwest of France. And for various reasons, but I mean, uh, if you are, if you define yourself as a salaried worker, in France, then you are far more likely to vote for Ms. Le Pen's party than if you describe yourself as a an entrepreneur or a management type person, you are way more likely to vote for Mr. Macron. I mean, among working class voters, Ms. Le Pen, Ms. Le Pen got 67% of the vote. Well, I do want to be respectful of your time, uh, but if I could just ask you in closing, for the sake of my audience, how has this deepening polarization in France affected the landscape of religion in the country? Well, I mean, France is an officially secular country um, since the revolution. 
although I mean there have been a lot of disputes over religion, but uh, in 1905, France also passed a secularism law that officially mandated separation of church and state. So the French state is officially blind when it comes to religion. The French state does not collect any statistics on religious belonging or and so that's why you see and i guess that's another reason why there is some kind of identification with quebec i mean secularism is kind of held up there as um an inviolable principle of the french republic but at the same time i mean french is a deeply catholic society still and uh, it has a the largest Muslim population in Europe, and this Muslim population is by far the fastest growing segment of the population. France has been hit by uh, terrorist attacks that I think everyone has heard about. Mm -hmm. There is a debate in France about whether um, religion in the public sphere um, is a threat to the Republic or just a reflection of reality. And uh, I think that is the, the, the debate that fuels Ms. Le Pen's party and Eric Zemmour's party, who is another far-right party that shows how that debate has become normalized in France. It was a long time a marginal debate or it was a taboo debate. Or, but uh, when a far-right candidate wins 41.5% of the popular vote in a presidential election, it's no longer a marginal phenomenon. It is a, for lack of a better word, it's a mainstream phenomenon. And if you follow the logical progression of things, it suggests without addressing some of those issues that feed the far right, that the far right is only going to get stronger in subsequent elections in France. And I guess that is the, the big question facing France today. I mean, Mr. Macron is... Um, term limited, so he won't be up for re-election next time around. Uh, it's way too early to speculate about that, but it's certainly a consideration that anyone who is looking to the future in France has to think about. Oh, wow. A cliffhanger to end this conversation on, and thank you so much for your time, Conrad Yakabuski. Really appreciate this and all the work that you do for both of the publications that your work goes out to. You're a gifted writer. Thank you so much. Take care. And if you want to find out anything more about France in relation to Ukraine, including Yakubuski's pieces on this tenuous relationship, you can head to davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. So many around the world have found the past couple of years to be dark times. In his latest book, On Consolation, Michael Ignatieff traces how great figures from history found comfort while confronting crisis. We'll chat with the former Liberal Party leader and bright Harvard professor about what this looks like in an age of unbelief. Thanks for listening today, and we do invite you to check out the podcast version that you can find of Culture at a Crossroads, and make sure to tune in again next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.